Well, again, let me welcome you to Church of the City. If you're here for the first time, we are really thrilled to have you with us um, among this community of, of people doing our absolute best to, to follow Jesus well. Um, and what that means for us um, as a church is we're fairly young. Uh, we're not uh, a long-term established ministry or community. Um, we've been around for just over three years. Um, and to put that in perspective, and some of you have heard uh, this perspective before, there's a street half a block from us. Um, that is 150 years old. Um, and so that puts us kind of in the diapers category of being a church community, which is kind of cool if you think of it, because we still have permission to pee our pants, which is significant when you think about the theological implications of that, because it means we have room to, to make some mistakes and, and some room to, to wiggle and some room to, to grow and learn and, and adapt. And we're not so, so formed and rigid that, that there isn't space for us to continue to grow. And so for us as a church community, what you've stumbled into this morning, if you're here for the first time or have been coming for, for a significant amount of time, is, is you are a part of a group of people who are doing our absolute best to make sense of what God is doing in our life, in the life of our friends and family members, in the life of the people we call neighbor in our city, and make sense of what God is up to himself. Now, this is, this is the place where we get to live and what it means as we live that day-to-day is that we, we don't have it figured out yet. We just don't. We don't have it nailed. We, it's not so scripted that we, we can delineate, here's what you're going to do this week, here's what you're going to do next week, here's how, how it's going to go for you. So we, we're pretty upfront about this, that we, at the most core elemental level um, as a church, we simply are a group of humans. That's it. Humans who are broken and who are finding hope. That means that it doesn't really bother me if you are wealthy or poor. It doesn't bother me if you are white or brown. It doesn't bother me if you are young or old, male or female, Democrat or Republican, gay or straight. What matters is that you are human, that you understand there's something about you that's still broken, and that you're looking for hope in the middle of all of that. Now, that said, as we get to our time around the scriptures, um, there's probably no other space where we have um, this kind of shared air where we're actually like, if you think about it, like breathing in the molecules of the person next to you. It's kind of strange. Um, but we're, we're, yeah, some of you are really excited about that and some of you are not so excited about that. But we, we're sharing the same oxygen right now. And we're orienting ourselves around the scriptures. And, and more importantly, just the scriptures, we don't worship the Bible by any means. We're trying to orient our life around the central persona there, Christ, Jesus, this man, this teaching rabbi from Nazareth who proclaimed, who, who said he was God in flesh and bones walking on earth. Now, we're on a journey right now through um, some writings that come earlier than Christ by about a thousand years. It's the Psalms. And you've probably heard of them. Maybe you're familiar with them a bit. Um, we're taking it slow. We're just looking at the first 10 Psalms right now kind of all together, and then we'll take a break and come back to it at a later date. But I was talking to um, a friend of mine this week, um, or maybe it was the end of last week, and we were, we were talking about what it, um, what it means to be in the scriptures together in this kind of community where, um, where we're really going towards trying to understand what God's up to without trying to go too far by saying that we know perfectly, that we are God, and keeping that tension of humility, and yet we still do want to know. Like We're not saying like it's unknowable and, and it's impossible to, to say with any kind of certitude that God is doing this kind of thing on earth or in you. And that tension leaves um, some, some space for ambiguity. 
And, and one of the, the things I get um, criticized for in the way I teach the scriptures is that I don't typically, if you've been around for a while, you understand this, I don't typically tie up the end of my sermons with the three points that you need to apply to your life this week. Now, that's, that's out of the, the groove of typical preaching in the American context because uh, predominantly right now, that's, that's the goal, is what are the three things we can walk away from, or the one thing I walk away from, or the 17 steps to a better marriage I can walk away from, from this particular sermon. And I'm okay with application. That's, that's great with me. But here's the reality of it. Your life is far more complicated than three steps towards maturity. Your life is far more complex than I can appreciate as I sit here and try to script for you, this is the way you ought to think and do and move. What we are, are trying to get at here at Church of the City, and what we're trying to do in these moments around the scriptures is to apply our whole self to what God's doing in these texts. Because these texts are, are these moments in, in the world's history where God was interacting with humans, and we're trying to apply our whole self to it in the kind of way where we could take that whole idea and begin to, to let it become applied into our world. But the hard work is not letting another human, or, or maybe give, to give it like more of a like rough kind of thing, copping out and letting another human do for us the work that we've got to do ourselves. And so for us, what we, what we do is we spend time around the scriptures, and you'll find this this morning, and I was wrestling with this as we came towards this, and I was, last week with my friend as we sat eating the best euros in town and talking about this. If you want to know where that is, I'll tell you later. You have to cliffhanger. Um, come back for another day, I guess. Um, but we're talking about it. I'm wrestling with the tension of, man, I think it would be easier in my soul if I could just wrap this up with a nice bow and tell you here are the three things you ought to do with this. But I think it robs us from the goodness of what's actually going on in these kinds of texts, these kinds of moments in people's lives where God is interacting with them and trying to do something. And maybe more importantly, it robs you of this opportunity to come close to the God who created you and find something good in that moment, in that experience, in that relationship. So this morning, we're in the Psalms. It's poetic. It's a different kind of literature. It's challenging for some of us. And yet, I am confident that as we apply our whole selves to what's going on here, there is something good. So I'm going to do this this morning. Don't always do this as we kind of shift gears and whatnot, but I'm going to pray and just ask for the Holy Spirit to, to walk with us, to take care of us as we journey towards this, this text this morning. So if you would just pray. God, this morning, hmm, it is good to be with these humans. It is good to, to come face to face with what you might be doing in us. And yet that goodness requires a fair bit from us. It requires honesty, it requires our attention, it requires energy. Some of the things we may not have this morning. So God, our prayer is that where we are falling short, where we just don't have it in us this morning, where there's still these rough patches or rebellious moments, God, I pray for grace. I pray that your spirit would teach and guide, and shape, and show, even when we are, are struggling ourselves to make sense of what you're up to. God, thank you for, for David as he writes this, uh, this particular psalm. Thank you for what you've been doing on earth for so long, and thank you for what you're doing in us today. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen. So I'm going to have you do something that we don't always do. 
I'm going to have you stand up for the reading of Scripture. That's cool with you. Can we stand together? I know all these oddball things we're doing this morning. Fantastic. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Psalm 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'll have it on the screen uh, provided behind me. And here's, here's what I'd like to, um, to help with this morning. And I, I've, we've said this before as we've come towards the Psalms. Again, poetry or things that we're in language we're not really familiar with, maybe the way it's organized, it's hard to keep track of what's being said and why it's being said. So what I'd like you to do this morning as, as we read this out loud and as you kind of just experience it, I'd like you to take a pulse of what you're feeling. I don't always approach the feelings as the best indicator of what God's up to, but I think there's something really good here as we approach poetry. So just how does this strike you? What what kind of emotional gut response do you get as you hear this psalm? Psalm 7. It starts with, if you have a text open, actually before the number one, with this. A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Lord my God. I take refuge in you, save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid any ally with evil or robbed or or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembly, assembled people gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. My shield is God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit that they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. You can have a seat. So what's your uh, emotional state after reading that? Pretty cheery, right? Feel pretty good about the day? Glad you came to church? Hear about God's wrath, his anger, his frustration? To hear someone ask God to, uh, to basically destroy the people opposed to him? I mean, it sounds like a pretty encouraging message overall, um, and I'm totally sarcastic because there's nothing really encouraging about that on the outset. In fact, the, the tenor of this particular psalm is, is just dripping with anger, with, with pain, with hurt. And, and this is the case in a lot of the writings of David. And if you understand anything about his story, his life was riddled with pain. It was just riddled with people doing things to him and him doing things that were were just a mess. I mean, from the very beginning of him being appointed as king of, of this country, this nation state Israel, things just start off on the wrong foot. Like Samuel comes as prophet to try to come and, and anoint a king of in, in this family of Jesse. 
and all the sons are passed over, none of them are the king, they'd kind of forgotten that David was a candidate for this. And there's one more son, he's the weakest and kind of the one that's on the outside, and so he's brought and he's then anointed king over Israel. Sounds great, except that there's already a king in Israel. And if you know anything about Game of Thrones, you know two kings doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. And so this, this, this issue arises of two kings in Israel, one who has all the power and one who's been anointed by God. And it just sets things off on a trajectory of tons of violence and tons of pain. This is David's situation. I mean, it, it evolves into, into worse kinds of situations. He has people trying to betray him from inside of his own family. His own son tries to run after him and murder him, drives him out of Jerusalem into hiding because his son gains so much political capital in order to try to destroy him. David himself, I mean, he, just, he finds himself after conquering so much of the, the enemies of, of Israel in a place where he's complacent and, and, and just kind of vulnerable to his own inner workings. And he decides to have this affair with this woman and then tries to hide it. And then tries to, have, um, try to hide it by trying to like, pretend like she actually um, had uh, intercourse with her husband while he was on a break from being an army general, and it doesn't really go the way it's supposed to go, so now there's this baby coming, and it's going to expose him, so instead of owning up to everything, he decides to have the husband of the woman he's having an affair with killed. I mean, the whole thing is just tragic, and if that wasn't the worst of it, the child that's born is born deformed and malnourished, and it dies. His world is full of pain. I mean, you, you think about, you miss the max on a, on a particular day getting to work, and you kind of feel like you're bent out of shape. His life was just riddled with legitimate, ongoing devastation. And so a psalm like this can kind of makes sense, right? Like he rarely finds himself to, to having to lead the people of Israel who, by all intents and purposes, are a real challenge and a real handful. To try to orient them towards God, to try to help them see their place in the world, to fight their enemies. I mean, this is a time when land and territory really mattered, and people were genuinely trying to attack them and murder them and kill them for their land. And he's the one charged with protecting Israel. We don't actually know the circumstances of this psalm. It gives it to us in the very first line. is that this is a, some kind of, of sung, um, poetic section in relationship to someone who's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. Someone named Cush, a Benjamite, who's also, that would mean that they were also part of the house of Israel. This is an internal struggle, an internal fight. Something's going on. And he's looking at the situation, it seems like, as being so dire that he's got to go to God and say, would you please fight for me? Would you please do something about this? Now, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, and you should go back and listen to those on the podcast if you have a chance, if it interests you. Otherwise, I'll just give you the short-term version here. What we have going on in the Psalms is located in a time and a place. There isn't a scholar worth their salt who would recommend to you to, to pray to God that he destroy physically the people around you who frustrate you and make you angry. And the reason for that is that this is a different time and space. Um, and, and if you've, at times I've been tempted to do such, to think about the people who are opposed to my thinking or my way in the world, and I would really like God to annihilate them at times. And yet what we have is we have a very different place and time today, 3,000 years removed. And it isn't just that we've evolved as humans. The reality is that's not true at all. We're dealing with the same thing, same kind of pains, same kind of issues, same kind of interpersonal conflicts. What we have is we have a completely different set of circumstances when it comes 
to the relational agreement between humanity and God. Now, this moment where David's living is what we call the Old Covenant or the Original Covenant. This moment where God says to a man named Abraham that if you follow me, if you are my people, if you go where I tell you to go and you listen to what I have to say, then I will bless you. And from that blessing, you will become a blessing to all nations. And so there's this this agreed upon stipulation of if we follow the ways of God, if we're righteous and do the things he wants, then we'll get blessing out of it. And if we don't, then we'll get curse out of it. And this is kind of on switch, off switch kind of situation. And the law comes and emerges, 613 rules in Torah to abide by and follow. And you can pretty well measure whether or not you're doing okay. And, And it became pretty clear when you look at a person or a people group who weren't following the ways of God. And what that would produce are moments like this in David's life. He wants to be blessed by God. He wants to be part of the people of God. But there are people opposing him, challenging that. And so this becomes this relationship. You can see that, oh, they're opposed to God. If, if I'm with God and they're against me, then they must be opposed to God as well. And so David is here wrestling with what to do about that. And highly appropriately, this, this prayer comes up. And a few key characteristics here. First of all, David acknowledges that God is his refuge, that God is his shield, that God is his source. He's not trying to say, I'm so good, I've got this figured out, I'm the king of Israel, I'm the one who should be able to challenge these people and win. He recognizes his own shortcomings. But then he also recognizes his need for something to change. It can't stay this way. He will be destroyed if it continues on this way. And so his prayer is, defeat them. God, fight for me. Now, like I said, 3,000 years removed, we we live in a different time and space. Yes, 3,000 years, different language, different people group. But more importantly, a different relational contract. We live in what we call a new covenant, second covenant. We live under this this now where the presence of God has actually arrived on earth, and it has in some ways what, what Jesus himself has said, is he has come to completely and utterly fulfill all the requirements of the first contract. Not to get, a, not get rid of it, but to acknowledge that this, this wasn't functional because we as humans are so dysfunctional. And so he comes to com- entirely satisfy the original covenant, all the sacrifices necessary for our sin, all, all of the issues that are presented at the temple, all of the offerings to, to, uh, to stave off God's anger, all the satisfied rules and laws that had consequences natural and punitive. Christ comes and fulfills, leaving a huge question mark. Now what? Now what does the human-God relationship look like? David, a thousand years prior to Jesus arriving on earth, didn't have an idea of what it would look like for God to put flesh and bones on and walk in the dust of humanity. And yet when we get there, when we get to this moment, when we see Jesus arriving, what becomes evident, abundantly clear, is that our assumptions, even our best assumptions, of the economy of God, of the way this works, the relationship between humans, what we can and can't do to each other, was just pretty twisted and pretty messed up and pretty broken even at its best. And so David, in this moment, is doing his God's honest best to make sense out of his situation under a different covenant than we live under. 
So some might say an idea like this, a psalm like this, has very little relevance for a Christian life. For someone today in the here and now trying to follow Jesus today, yeah, we don't call down fire on people. In fact, Jesus rebuked his disciples for trying to do that. But we don't create these enmities between humans and say, they are worse than me, I am righteous, therefore God destroy them. So the question becomes, what then? In light of a new contract between humanity and God, in light of Jesus, how does this psalm make any sense at all? And at first, that, that, that's a good question. And at first it tripped me up. Yeah, maybe there just isn't as much relevance for this. I mean, maybe, maybe David's assumption that God is as angry as he is isn't accurate, or maybe he was angry and now he's not angry. I don't know what's going on here. But as I, as I, as I studied on this more and meditated on it more and thought on it more, it became really, really clear that David's request here in this psalm is as relevant as ever. I want to turn your attention towards the writings of, of a New Testament uh, writer. He wrote letters predominantly. His name's Paul. Um, and this, this, this guy, Paul, he didn't meet Jesus face to face. He wasn't one of the disciples. The closest he got was um, the moment he uh, kind of changed his direction in life, heaven ripped open, and Jesus starts talking to him and basically asks him, why are you on the other team? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you chasing down the people who are, who are mine? And, and that's as close as he gets to seeing Jesus face to face. And it radically transforms his world. And he starts uh, uh, this journey of becoming a person surrendered to the ways of Jesus. And I don't know if you know this or not, but he spent 13 years before he goes into active ministry just studying and trying to rethink about what his life was. And then he, he goes into ministry in a place called Antioch, which is this massive epicenter of Christianity in the early church. And from there, he starts moving with other people through the Roman world and starts talking with, with individuals and starts gathering together into communities much like this one around Jesus. And as he would gather those communities together, he wouldn't stay very long in many cases. And as he left, he would write letters back and forth between um, this new community of faith and their pastor who helped them start this new church. And in one such letter, in one such writing, we get this phraseology. And I want to, it's one you might be familiar with because it's one, if you were around the church when you were a child, um, we use this, this imagery a lot. But it's in the letter to the Ephesians, the very tail end of the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul says this to them. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, i.e., as David believed it was, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. You see, Paul here reframes the whole conversation of our relationship with the world around us from David's perspective. A thousand years on, Paul understands our battle is not among one another. It is not across ethnic lines or political lines or ideological lines. It is human to human. Our battle is against the one that we're really opposed to, the powers that we can't see. The, the, the principalities, the authorities, the rulers of a spiritual realm that makes us hugely uncomfortable in an intellectual American context to even mention. 
And yet, Paul understands something primal to following Jesus. The following Jesus does not go unopposed. I don't know if any of you uh, watch Parks and Rec. Any Parks and Rec fan in the thing? Yeah, great, fantastic. If you don't know Parks and Rec, let me explain the situation to you. It's, it's a fanciful um, play on uh, local government politics um, in the Parks Department of a made-up town in Indiana. And this one character, central character, Leslie Nope, um, she uh, it goes from being the assistant uh, director of this department to starting to run for office, and she's going to run for city council. And she comes up against um, a very powerful figure in, uh, in the community of Pawnee, this, this community. And this, the person she comes up against um, is named Bobby. Now, now Bobby is the, the son of the wealthiest family in town. Um, this, they own this massive company called Sweetums. Now, Sweetums is what it sounds like. All they make is sugary things. And Leslie Nope has an ideological difference with, uh, with this whole company. And as she has this, this riff with them, she, she's really quite intimidated that the son, the heir of this, uh, of this empire, would, would run against city council. So there's this moment, and I just watched this the other day, and I was like, oh, it's a classic, um, where she goes to meet Bobby, okay? She goes and she, she wants to um, confront her opponent and, and let her opponent know who she is and that, she, that she's going to fight for the city council position in this election, and as she comes, um, she, she starts conversing with Bobby, and she's really confused. She, at first, she thinks he's so powerful, he, he won't even give her the time of day. That he just is, is just like so committed and dedicated to his race, he's like writing her off and kind of like making fun of her. But as she interacts with him, she discovers something. That her opponent is so infantile in his maturity, he doesn't even really put together what he's doing. He, he can't contemplate the fact that he wouldn't just be handed a city council seat. He's so entitled and empowered uh, because of his position in his parents' company. So there's this, this moment, this one interaction uh, between uh, Leslie Nope and Bobby that, that crystallizes, I think, much of what the Christian experience is. And unfortunately, we sit in Bobby's seat in this conversation. They're, they're conversing about the election, and finally, it dawns on Bobby that he has an opponent. And he just verbalizes it. He says, well, I'm running unopposed in this race. And they've been talking for some time. And she's been telling him, I am the one opposing you. I, I am the one running for the same seat you're running for. And she, so she tells him again, I'm right here. I'm the one running against you for this seat. And he is destroyed at the concept that he wouldn't just win the seat. He can't believe it. And so he starts bartering with her. And he, and he basically turns into his four-year-old self and he says, give it to me. Just, just give me the seat. You just stop running. You, you just don't, don't run for it, Leslie. I, I want it. Give it to me. I want it. Give it to me. He starts repeating himself over and over and over again. And to Leslie's dismay, she can't even have a, a, an intellectual conversation with her opponent because her, her opponent is in such denial that there's someone who would oppose him. You guys, that is our situation in the American church. As American followers of Jesus, we are in such denial that there would be anyone who would oppose us. That it seems out of the realm of possibility that it could even be true. Haven't we progressed beyond that? Aren't we, haven't we intellectualized the world enough? Don't we understand the origins of the universe well enough to understand there, there's no place for Satan and demons and principalities and authorities that would oppose us? That's all untrue. 
And for many of us, we try to escape it when it comes up in the scriptures. We try to pretend that there's no one who would oppose anything going on in my life other than maybe the people who don't like me. At worst, my internal self I have conflict with, but certainly not any formidable enemy who would be opposed to God. I can't say it any clearer than this. You have an opponent, whether you believe it or not. Now, I'm not the kind of person who wants to blame everything bad that happens in your life on the devil or on a demon. But I am going to say this. The world is fallen and broken. And that fall is more thorough than you believe it to be. And the instigator of that fallenness and that brokenness and that sinfulness is the individual opposed to God more than any other individual. And that individual still has a place on earth. In fact, Jesus said he is the prince of this earth for these moments. So whether or not there is direct correlation between the bad things happening in your life and Satan himself or not, he is the source material for it. And ongoingly, I think one of the biggest shams that we have sold ourselves in the American Christian community is that it's just not relevant anymore. That there is no spiritual force opposed to us. That we are the products of our situation, and if we try hard enough, we can escape those situational problems. But if Paul knew what he was talking about, and if he's pointing us towards preparation, be ready, put on the armor of God because you have someone who's opposed to you, then David's prayer becomes hugely important. Because David is praying, David is instigating this idea that you are not alone. The following Jesus doesn't mean you now live in isolation. I've said it many times to a lot of people, and at first I thought this was going to destroy the people around me, but I find this the opposite to be true. Following Jesus doesn't make life easier. It makes life more difficult. Because prior to following Jesus, you just got to do what you want to do. And yeah, there was a lot of pain involved, and things came unglued often. Well, now you're following Jesus, and you still make bad decisions. And things still come unglued, and you now have opponents. Your inner workings are opposing it. The circumstances of a fallen world are opposing it. Satan himself is opposing it. Jesus didn't say, if you follow me, things are going to get softer, easier, cushier, wealthier, and healthier. He said, if you follow me, be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for pain. Be prepared to take up your cross and die with me. Not just in this metaphysical, theoretical sense, but the reality that following Jesus makes life a real challenge. Means that God himself has got to fight on our behalf. And that is David's prayer. And it's a prayer that is echoed through the time of the scriptures. I just want to read a few of these passages to you because this isn't a new concept, and it shouldn't be new for us either. This should be something we get a grip of. It starts back in Deuteronomy. I mean, it's just a few. I mean, this is like the 30,000-foot view of this idea. This is everywhere in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy, this is the giving of the law. This is Moses standing in front of the whole assembly of Israel, reading the whole law for a whole day. You thought an hour was tough on a Sunday morning standing all day in the heat of the Sinai Peninsula, having the law read to you. And, and Moses says this, do not be afraid of them, talking about the opponents that they would find as they followed God. The Lord your God 
The Lord God himself will fight for you. Or later in the, re- in the, in the reading. For you, sorry, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you a victory. Fast forwarding in, in Joshua, this is the moment where there's a transition in power. Moses is laying his hands on the new leader of Israel. And he says to him, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. But it presses on into the writings of the prophets. In Isaiah we hear, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Not because of their own goodness, their own abilities, but because of God's. New Testament even. In John, we get Jesus saying, the thief comes only to steal, to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, they may have life and have it abundantly. Romans 8, Paul again, writing to a church in Rome. What should we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, thematically through scripture, what we have is this relationship with God. It doesn't matter if it's old covenant or new covenant, where God is on our side. He's on our team. He has chosen to be a part of what we're doing, to not leave us alone, to not leave us unprepared, understanding that we do have difficult times in our lives, compounded by the fact that we're doing our absolute God's honest best to follow Jesus in life. You are not alone. I want to read something to you, um, and I don't have it on the screen because I want you to listen to the way this, this falls out. This is at the very end of our scriptures. It's in Revelation. And it's this, this book that you may have been scared away from reading, and I totally understand. I spent about a decade pretending it didn't exist uh, personally. And yet, as I, as I interact with the, the final writing of John, as he's given this vision of Jesus and the, from Jesus about Jesus and about us, I can't help but now come to terms with the fact of what it says. At the very tail end of, of the book of Revelation, I want to read this to you, and I, I, want it, I want it to encapsulate a little bit of a vision of what we see in Psalm 7. I saw, standing, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed up in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written this name. King of kings and Lord of lords. You see the imagery given. Now this is prophetic imagery. This imagery that is given of the final moments of humanity interacting with God is Jesus himself, the one who put flesh and bones on, the one that Paul talks about taking and disrobing himself of his godliness and re-robing himself in humanity. Fighting on your behalf. That is the image through the course of Scripture of our relationship with God. David's prayer is a prayer of being attentive to that reality, naming our need 
for God to fight on our behalf and asking for help. You wonder why so often your world is so difficult. Have you thought that it might be because you're doing it on your own and you're not asking for help? Because you've denied the fact that you have opponents in this world more than your internal workings and more than your circumstances. Has it dawned on us as a community of people trying to follow Jesus that we need more help than we think we do? So two things. To end it here. First, God is on your side. I know it sounds trite. I know it sounds cliche. But it's so true. And it is so easily forgotten. That God is on your side. Secondly, not because you're so good, but because you aren't. See, if you were so good and you were so powerful, you wouldn't need him. And you wouldn't need someone to fight on your team. You would have this thing called life figured out. If that is your situation, by all means, please go on with your life figuring it out on your own. But if your world is challenging and difficult and a bit of a mess and broken and painful, and you're at a spot where you're saying you can recognize how much help you need, and you can see that God himself wants the help, why wouldn't you let him? What's keeping you from letting him? Why wouldn't we be the kind of people who pray the prayer that David prayed? That God, you are my shield. In you I take refuge. Arise against my enemies. Arise against the pain. Arise against Satan himself. Arise and take care of your faithful servant. This is David's prayer. And to be honest with you, I think it has more relevance today than I ever could have imagined. Let's pray together. God, this morning, confronted with our own needs and our own realities, we are, we are really desperate for help. We need you in ways that are difficult to articulate, difficult to own up to. And yet, here in these moments, God, I pray that we would. I pray that your spirit would, keep, would make it safe for us to come to you and ask you for your help, that you would assure us and reassure us and remove the anxiety that often comes up when we acknowledge we're not adequate. And then God, in and through all of it, God, I pray that you would help, that you would be our refuge, that you would be our shield, and that you would be the one who fights on our behalf. Jesus, we love you. Those words, they, they oftentimes are a bit rote. We say them without understanding what they mean. But in this moment, to this extent, God, it means that we are grateful that you decided to show up on earth to walk in our dust and love us really well. We pray in your name. Amen.